Chris Dilly. Chris Dilly is a uh, pastoral intern at Cornerstone Baptist Church down in Roseville, and he's going to be coming and preaching the word to us today. So let's get our Bibles out. Let's get ready to hear what God has to speak to each of us from his word today, Chris. Good morning, everybody. We'll go ahead and have you turn your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. And this morning, we'll be looking at Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. It is a privilege to to be able to worship with you uh, at a church that's about an hour away from where we live and that believes in the gospel. Uh, That's a great encouragement to my wife, Stephanie, and I. And I want to thank you guys so much. This morning, when we came in, we were warmly greeted and welcomed and our kids were taken care of and and aren't being taken care of. So we really appreciate that. Um, and it's good to be here this morning. If you look in uh, Matthew chapter 22, I'll begin reading here. And what we see this morning is uh, Jesus' parable of the wedding feast. That's what we'll be focusing on this morning. So Matthew 22 and verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads, and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the main roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But... When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Let's pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would move through the preaching of the word that you would give myself and everyone who hears today this this sermon, ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of this parable, that we would be reminded this morning of the gracious invitation of the gospel and of the uh, glorious righteousness of Jesus that is given to sinners who repent and believe. The praise of Christ name. Amen. Well, we are in August, and the summer is starting to wind down for us. And if some of us uh, have gone to a lot of weddings this summer, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I actually went to two weddings in one day. It's two couples that we love, and we want to make this thing work. And so uh, we kind of tag teamed a little bit. I went to one in the morning, and we both went to one in the evening to, to get things done. But uh, you guys can be familiar with this idea of getting all these wedding invitations over the summer. And, and our fridges are usually riddled with them, aren't they? And they're not just the wedding invitation themselves, but also with the save the dates, right? And so um, we don't just get an invitation, but we get this card in the mail that says, hey, we want to get married, and we want to do it this date. No other details, but just mark your calendars, right? And so we get that. We might read about it on Facebook, um, wedding plans and announcements. Um, and then we get a more formal invitation that will typically say something like, we request the honor of your presence you know, to our big day kind of thing. And you think through that, and as I was thinking through this, this uh, parable, it starts out with an invitation. And, and why does a couple who's about to, to, to join in the covenant of marriage, why did they send a save-the-date uh, card and an actual wedding invitation? And, um, and why, are they, why do they spend all this money, all this time on, on a guest list? Why do they invite us to their wedding? Well, they invite us to their wedding because they want us to partake of something very joyous. 
I mean, think about it in life. There's a, there's a few high notes in life, uh, typically, that people will, will experience. If the Lord has called them to marry, they'll, they'll have a marriage, and a marriage ceremony, and a wedding. And if the Lord's called them to have kids, they'll have the joy of having children. Those are very uh, joyous occasions. And, and the couple getting married wants us to join them for that occasion. Now, as we look in this parable this morning, we see a king. And a king who has an invitation that he's extending to his guest. And the invitation isn't just to any wedding. The invitation is to the wedding feast of his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look at a parable, we think about what a parable is as we read through through scripture. A parable is a fictional story that's communicating spiritual truths. And so when you approach a parable, and we need to read through a parable and study a parable, we have to say, who are the players? Who, who do the characters represent? So if you look in the text of the wedding feast this morning, we see a king. Well, the king in this parable represents God the Father. The son, I think we could probably figure out, represents the son of the king, Jesus Christ. And then his guests, or his servants, I'd rather, are the ones who are the prophets. And he sends his prophets out to, to invite Israel to the wedding feast of, the, of Jesus Christ. And so this parable is, is really in tandem with the parable of the tenants, which came before here in Matthew's Gospel. And the main idea here is that God the Father is, is sending the prophets to his chosen nation, Israel, to invite them to believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so when we think of the servants who are sent out, we think of the Old Testament prophets, many of whom were killed by God's people and rejected by God's people when, when they were calling them to repentance and belief. We also think of John the Baptist in the context of the Gospel of Matthew here. John the Baptist is a prophet. He is the prophet who prepared the way for Jesus, yet he also was murdered. Then we even think of Jesus himself, who is a prophet. He comes and he says to the Pharisees and to the, the, Israel, uh, the Israelites, Believe in me, I am your Messiah. And so, so that's, that's the, uh, the parable of the wedding feast this morning. This invitation has been extended to Israel And yet we see as we we go through this this morning that Israel has rejected that invitation from God the Father. And what we see in the parable is is the Father's response to that rejection. And then also the fact that the gospel is is then extended. The invitation to believe in Jesus is then extended out into the nation. And so that's where we're going this morning. And we're going to look through, uh, work through this parable uh, this morning. So my first point, if you're taking notes, is that those who reject the invitation of the king... Invite the wrath of the king. So those who reject the invitation of the king invite the wrath of the king. And this is in verses 1 through 7. When we look in verses 1 through 4 here, we see that God prepared his best for Israel. God prepared his best for Israel. We look in the text, and he says in verse 4, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready come to the wedding feast. What is God the Father, the King in the story, what is He saying to His servants? He's saying, I have prepared my very best meal for this wedding reception. The very best that I have to offer is um, is given to Israel if only they would believe. And so what Jesus is telling us here in the parable, you think of the fat portions of animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. I think of Cain and Abel. Remember Cain brought a sacrifice that wasn't worthy. Abel brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Of, of his animals and their fat portions, if you remember reading that, that means he brought his very best to the Lord. So we see here in the parable, God the Father has his very best for Israel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied about, who all the Old Testament pointed toward. And he is the one who is, is the, the wedding feast that they're invited to. So he offers the very best to Israel, and yet they reject that offer. When you look in the parable... God the Father doesn't just offer this invitation one time. He offers it numerous times, doesn't he? he? His servants go out, the people don't come, and he sends his servants back out. So what we see there is the fact that God is gracious, isn't he? He's, he's merciful. He's slow to anger. He, he sends his gospel message, and he calls people to repentance time and time again. And yet Israel repeatedly rejected the offer of Jesus as their Messiah. To refuse an invitation of any king, you think about that, to refuse the invitation of any king would be considered a blatant disregard for the king's graciousness, for the king's authority, and for the king's rule. And we think about this parable, how much more serious then is it that Israel, God's chosen nation, would reject their Messiah? That's a serious offense. And so 
they invite the wrath of the king by rejecting this invitation. This is an interesting parable because when a Jewish person would read this parable, they would have a context that they were working from, from the Old Testament. They would have a, a familiarity with this idea that God wants to be in a wedding relationship with his chosen people. So, for example, in Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 5, Isaiah talks in that text about the Israelites and the fact that God would one day rejoice over the nation as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Yet they missed out on that. They missed out on that relationship when they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. We see in verses 5 and 6 that Israel didn't want God's best. So God has offered his best to Israel and Jesus, the Messiah, the one who brings the forgiveness of their sins and reconciliation to God. He has offered his best, yet Israel does not want God's best. This is in verses 5 through 6. What's interesting about these verses is that the, the response that the, the religious leaders and the Israelites give to this invitation are, are, are varied responses, opposite ends of the spectrum. So, for example, if you look in verse 5, the invitation is offered, it says in verse 5, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So the first response to the invitation of the Father to, to Israel to believe in Jesus, the first response is indifference. You see that in the text. It's indifference. In verse 5, they were content with going back to their farm. They were content with going back to their business. The point here is that they didn't see their need for God. They didn't see their need for Jesus. They didn't see the need to be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to the Father. Now think about this. Uh, you know, you know, they're, they're just happy with life as is. You hear this glorious gospel message, the fact that the God of the universe loves you, and he wants to, to, to forgive you of your sins through the work of Christ. And yet, you, you don't see that. You don't see the importance of that, the amount of blindness it takes for someone to receive an invitation to such an event, and then so easily dismiss it outright. That is, that is blindness. And the scary thing about this, the scary thing about someone responding to the gospel and indifference is the fact that they don't see their utter need for God. They don't see their utter need for God. You think about the gospel, and perhaps you think about when you were saved. What, what had to happen before you could repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and be reconciled to God? You had to see your need, didn't you? I had to see my need. I had to see that there was a holy God that I have rebelled against. I had to see that, that, that I could not work my way into a relationship with him. And so God, the Holy Spirit, shows sinners their need, and they're able to respond in repentance and faith, yet Israel's heart was hardened. And they didn't see their need for forgiveness. They didn't see their need for Jesus of Nazareth. And that's a, that's a serious amount of blindness there. They, were, they had this false sense of hope anchored in the fleeting pleasures of the world. I'm reminded of Psalm 1611. You know, when we, when we share the gospel with people, a lot of times, they don't want to come to Jesus because they want to live life the way they want to live it. They say, I like my life how it is. I have, I have a, enough joy. I have enough comfort. I have enough pleasure. The problem is, is you can't have any of those things apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's why I'm reminded of Psalm 1611, where David says, In your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, not a little bit of joy, fullness of joy. Pleasures not for a short time, but pleasures forevermore. And this is what Israel's offered if only they were repent and believe in Christ, and yet they missed out on that. They thought their life was good, but it actually is devoid of joy because they don't know the one and true living God. They had an indifferent and apathetic response to the things of God. You think about our own lives this morning. You know, I was talking about non-believers a moment ago, how they often will respond in apathy and indifference to the gospel because they don't see their need. They don't see their, they don't, their need for God. But believers can do the same thing. We can respond in apathy. We can respond in indifference sometimes in the Christian life to God. We can say, God, you know what? I can do things on, on my own. I can, I, can, I can mark out my own path, God. I don't need you. But the reality is, is we need him every hour. And so this message isn't just 
for sinners who don't know Christ yet, but it's also for Christians. It's a, it's a warning to us, really, to not be apathetic, to not be indifferent to the things of God. The second response we see here, the king's invitation, is hatred and violence. So on the one hand, you have apathy and indifference. But then you go to the other extreme, and you have hatred, and you have violence. So if you look in the text in verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. So these individuals weren't indifferent to the gospel message. They weren't indifferent to the call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They were vehemently opposed to it. They were they, they hated the Messiah. And we see that ultimately in Jew, the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus. And they're handing him over to the Gentile authorities on a murderous cross. And we see that rejection. We see that hatred that they feel towards the Messiah. They hated him. They didn't see their need for him. And again, the history of Israel is replete with these types of examples of God's prophets rejecting the word of God and killing the prophets. Jesus talked to them about this, the fact that they killed the prophets that were sent, the fact that they killed John the Baptist, as I said, and ultimately Jesus. We have to ask ourselves this morning, do we hate God's son today? Do we hate God's son? Do we want anything to do with Jesus this morning? You know, I think about this uh, non-believers again. People oftentimes, when we share the gospel with them, they're mad at God, aren't they? They're mad at God because their life isn't going the way that they want it to go. They're mad at God because, because they like their sin. They don't want to change. Again, they don't see their need. But really, when you think about it, does any human being have a reason to be mad at God? We don't. We just talked about in, in the Sunday school, or ABF, is that what you call it? ABF, that's what we call it. We just talked to the Sunday school, I just call it this ABF, about the fact that God loves the world. So he sent his only begotten son. So, so God, proper response to man's sinfulness, actually shouldn't be love. It should be wrath. It should be justice and righteousness. Okay? It should be just that. But God determined, the Trinity determined in eternity past to love us in spite of our sin and to send Jesus on our behalf. And so, individuals who we share the gospel with, who have reason to hate God, we say, no, the king, the king offers you this invitation of eternal life. And he doesn't just offer it once. He offers it to you time and time again. We read in scripture elsewhere that God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to eternal life in Christ Jesus. So God is patient with sinners. And so when we encounter someone who, who responds like they did here, the Pharisees did here, and the Israelites they respond in violent rejection of the son of the king. We say, no, that should not be your response because he loves you and he died on your behalf. And tonight, this morning, uh, you might be here this morning, you might be struggling in your own heart with anger towards God. You might be struggling with your own heart and something's going on in your life and God, I'm, I'm not happy with the way things are going right now. I'm not satisfied with how life is going. That is something that we... That is a wrong feeling. We need to trust in his sovereignty. We need to trust in the fact that he loves us. And if we're a Christian, he works all things, doesn't he, for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And so we can know that truth this morning and realize we should not have an issue with God, but we have an issue with our own hearts. I think also, why do people respond to the gospel? Why do people respond to Jesus with hatred? Why do people sometimes, if you ever share your faith, sometimes you'll get people who want to talk and, and they can tell you genuinely care for them and they want to hear what you have to say, but you ever get people that you share the faith with and they just kind of shut you down and then they ridicule you and say, say you're ignorant and that can't be true. Why do people respond with such venom towards the gospel message, to this invitation of eternal life? And I think this is why. The same reason that the religious leaders and the Jews responded to the prophets in Jesus in the way that they did, is because Jesus called them out and the prophets called them out in their sin. Nobody wants to be confronted and said and told that you're doing something wrong. Nobody wants to be told that, that they have a problem and that they need it fixed and that they can't fix it. Only God, by His grace, can fix it. And so I think that's why people have such an issue with the gospel. That's why people have such an issue with Jesus, is because they don't want to repent of their sin, and they don't want to see their need. But that is exactly what the gospel does. And as I said earlier, it's only once they see their need that they can repent and believe in Christ. 
people who don't see their need before a holy God think that everything's okay and that they have no need for him. Next we see in verse 7 that God right, rightly judged Israel for their unbelief. This is in verse 7. God rightly judged Israel for their unbelief. The king was angry in verse 7, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So we have the response, this, this consistent rejection of Israel to believe in Jesus. And the father says, because you've rejected my son, you will be judged. And the reality of the situation is, is not just Israel, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who reject the Messiah will be judged because they're still in their sins. A lot of uh, scholars, as they read this, this judgment verse here, think this might refer to AD 70, the year when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They think it might specifically be predicting that. Other people look at this judgment and say this is, this is pointing towards the end, end times judgment when Jesus Christ comes back to judge the nations. And I think, I think we can take both of those things together because when we look in Scripture, oftentimes the temporal judgment is a glimpse and kind of points toward eternal judgment, doesn't it? And so I think both of those things are in play here, but the theological point is clear. Those who reject God's Son incite God's judgment for their sins. That is the only option for a just and holy God. He must punish sin. And so that's what we have here. Israel has rejected Jesus, and these individuals will be punished for that. The sober reality of this verse is that those who reject Jesus will be judged. You know, many of us, thinking through this again, if you're a believer here this morning, you don't reject Jesus, okay, or you wouldn't be a believer. You've accepted him. You've seen your sin, you've repented of that, and you put your faith in Christ. And not only once in history, but you continue to put your faith in Jesus every single day. And so we don't reject God in that sense. We don't reject Jesus in that sense that, that we said we believed in him. But we have to be careful. You know, when I was 18 years old, that was when I was saved. That's when God caused me to be born again. And growing up, my family attended church periodically. And if you would have spoken with me, I would tell you, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I love God. Yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that he is my Savior. I thought I was a Christian. Yet my life didn't reflect my beliefs. You see that? So I said I believed one thing, and I said that Jesus was my Savior, but in my life, Jesus was not my Lord. Was I a Christian? No. I was not a Christian, because a lot of people can agree with some of the basic tenets of Christianity. A lot of people can agree with some of the theology of Christianity. But it's not until, again, we see our need and we actually repent of our sins and say, Jesus, take over my life. You are Lord of my life. And so this morning I understand many of you won't reject Jesus as Messiah. You'll, you'll affirm that. Yes, Jesus says he is my Messiah. But I want us to take stock of our lives this morning and say, is what I believe, is what I profess, is what I sing about this morning, is what I hear about in ABF and learn about, what I read in my Bible, is that showing in my life? Am I rejecting Jesus in my thoughts? Am I rejecting Jesus in my actions? Am I rejecting Jesus in my words? Okay? Because plenty of people believe the facts about Christianity that are going to hell because they've never repented and believed in Jesus and they've never made him Lord of their life. They've never submitted to his will in their lives. And so it's something we have to, to be careful about this morning. And also thinking of this, the fact that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were so close to the truth, weren't they? They were so close to the truth, and yet they missed it. And what they missed, they were so close to the truth, yet you miss Jesus. And if you miss Jesus, you miss eternal life. And that's why the judgment comes here in verse 7. And so they rejected the invitation of the king, and that in turn invited the wrath of the king. Now what we see next in verses 8 through 10 is my second point. The fact that Israel rejected, but the king is gracious to extend his invitation to others. The king is gracious to extend his invitation to others. This is verses 8 through 10. There's something I want us to take note of here. When we read through the Bible, sometimes we just read through it, and we read through it rather quickly, and we might get a little bit out of it, but sometimes we might miss the bigger picture of what's happening. We might miss, for example, in a parable, the larger spiritual meaning of what's coming through. 
And so I think that's the case here in, in Matthew 22, in this, this parable of the wedding feast. We can miss something very large here that we may not notice at just a, a cursory reading of the text. And what we actually notice here is this, this reality that God's chosen people, Israel, and the religious leaders have rejected Jesus, their Messiah. And this parable is saying because of that rejection, the king's invitation now goes out more broadly. The king's invitation to believe in Jesus is now extended to the nations. So is that a big deal? Is it a big deal to have one chosen nation and then to say the gospel is for all nations? Is that a big deal? It's a very big deal, isn't it? And, and that is exactly the Great Commission, isn't it? The gospel is to go to, to every tribe and tongue and nation. And so that's what's happening. And I want us to see that here in verses 8 through 10. There's this transition in history, really, and God's saving plan worked through history from the gospel offered to Israel and then extended to the Gentiles. And then I'll have another note here on Israel here in a moment. But first we see the kingdom offer is expanded to the Gentiles, verses 8 and 9. Look in verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So the fact that the wedding feast is ready means that salvation is here. Jesus said to the Israelites, the kingdom of heaven is amongst you because I'm here. Believe in me now. There's, there's this call to repentance. There's this call to faith in Jesus Christ. And we see here in the text that the king tells his servants, Israel, the religious leaders have rejected me. Therefore, those who are invited are not worthy. And then what does he do? He sends his servants out to extend that invitation and invite as many as they find. They're to go out into the main roads. They're to share with everyone they see. Now, even though this, this reality is the fact that the gospel is for the nations, does this mean that Israel will not be saved? No, it doesn't mean that. Okay. Is Israel a nation? It is. Israel's a nation. And we know that at the great wedding feast, there will be individuals who are saved, who are in Christ, together with us from every tribe, tongue, and nation, including Israel. So... This doesn't mean that Israelites will not be saved. In fact, many of them will be saved as they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But the fact is this, is that the gospel is now for the nations as a response to Israel's initial rejection here. I want to read really quickly in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 is, is a great text on this reality that, that Jesus breaks down these barriers and these walls. And every, everybody, regardless of your race or your economic background or your preferences, no matter what, anybody can come to Jesus in repentance of faith. So if you look in Ephesians 2, verse 11, it says, Therefore, remember at that one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here's verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So, Paul is telling the, the, the Gentiles, you now can be grafted into the church, into the people of God, through the blood of Jesus. The gospel is for the nations. We look in Matthew 22, back in our parable. We look in verse 9. There's two words that begin verse 9 that are very familiar to us. Go, therefore. Go, therefore. Where have we seen those words before? What I mentioned earlier, the Great Commission, right? When Jesus is resurrected and before, before he ascends, he appears to his disciples and he, and he gives them this Great Commission to take the gospel of the nations. Go, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And is this a coincidence that Matthew uses, go, therefore, in, in this parable and then also later in his gospel. I don't think so at all. This is God's plan from the beginning, that the gospel be extended to the nations, to all who would believe in Jesus. And so this is a monumentous event that is taking place here. When the king in the text sends his servants into the main roads, 
we need to think of it this way. They're in Jerusalem. They're going out of Jerusalem. Taking every side street, every back alley, taking every countryside, every hill, every road that they could find, streaming away from the city. And again, that reminds us of Acts 1-8, doesn't it? And Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. So the parables communicate this idea that the people go out and invite everybody that they see. And they go away from the city and they invite people from all nations. That's the reality of the gospel going to all nations. So, realizing that the call of the kingdom, the fact that the gospel is for the nations, we have to ask ourselves this morning, how do we respond to that? So that's the reality of this parable. That to expand the message of the gospel, the invitation of the king. How do we respond to that? And I think one way that we respond to that first is we, we realize, as, as we read in Ephesians, that Jesus, through his blood, it said, has broken down all the dividing walls, hasn't he? He's, he's broken down every barrier that, that was in the way, that, that was keeping anybody from coming to him. And he's, and he's brought that down. And, and here, specifically thinking of Jew and Gentile barriers. So we have to ask ourselves in our own lives, what are the barriers what are the boundaries in your life and my life that, that hinder us from sharing the gospel with people? You know, it's a, it's a wake-up call to us, and you might think it's crazy that I say this this morning, but maybe some of us in this room have to deal with our racism. The racism is still a big issue in our country, if you haven't noticed. We've had a lot of situations happening right now in the news. Just recently, a University of Cincinnati police officer was indicted on murder charges after he, he killed a black man at a routine traffic stop. We have a lot of other um, instances of police brutality and black men losing their lives right now in our country in the recent, basically the last two years. We also have in the South, predominantly black churches that are again burning, that are being set on fire. Okay, that doesn't mirror the gospel, does it? To say that a certain color, a certain race of people can't worship Jesus. That's the opposite of the gospel. That's the opposite of what we see in this parable. The gospel is for every nation. It is for every person who repent and believe. And so we see this in a larger society, this, this issue with race. And we can be tempted to think that we aren't bogged down by some of those same prejudices. And so what I'm just calling you to do this morning, I'm calling myself to do this morning is to think through our lives. Do we have barriers that we set up that say, I don't I don't talk with those kind of people. I don't share Jesus. I don't interact with that kind of person. Um, he's, he's a kind of a rough-edged person. He has a rough background. I don't want to interact with him. Look, we just have different cultures. You know what? They have their culture out of my culture. Just think through your life. Because I know that I know that many of us were, uh, were raised with that. I grew up in a house that, that was, was, was racist. I had an extended family that was racist. So these are things that the gospel breaks down. The blood of Jesus breaks down these walls, doesn't he? But we have to make sure we're breaking them down in our lives as well. So examine your heart this morning. Are there barriers that you have in place that are keeping you from sharing the gospel with people who aren't like you? And it doesn't have to just be race. It can, it can be just economic factors or where you live and where they live. Okay? Believe me, it exists. When we took uh, college students downtown Detroit, we had some college students who were supposed to be almost, you know, adults, right? Parents scared of the fact that their kids were going to go to downtown Detroit. I mean, we weren't going, you know, to the ghettos, okay? We were, we were just going downtown to share the gospel. But why are they so scared of that? Well, maybe they need to read the parable. And actually, I preached it, so maybe they, they hopefully they, they heard it. So anyways, but, but that's the point. We need to break down those barriers that keep us from reaching the nation's for Jesus Christ. Secondly, we, we look at our life and what are we doing to fulfill what's happening in this parable? How are we taking the gospel to the main roads? When is the last time you prayed for a specific missionary or missionaries? When is the last time you gave specifically to mission work? When is the last time you yourself went on a short-term missions trip so that you can live out this, the text of Scripture? Here? Or perhaps this morning some of us need to do some prayer and say, God, perhaps you're calling me to missions. Perhaps you want me to be one of these individuals who's to go out into the main roads and to share the invitation of the king. So think through that this morning. Think about your own life. How are you How are you an example of the gospel, the fact that it is for the nations? You see in verse 10 also that the kingdom call is for all types of people. Look in verse 10. Those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 10. Verse 10. The, the servants went and they gathered everybody 
that they could, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Again, back to this visual. You ever been in a wedding reception and the place is full? Okay? All right, this is a packed house. So servants have gone out. They've taken the invitation to the king, the invitation to believe in Jesus, and, and people have come and they've filled the room. So the kingdom call, what we see here, is for all types of people. Notice the text says, go and call the bad and the good. What does this mean? All right, well, when we read go and call the bad and the good, it doesn't mean that God sees everybody as some people as bad and some people as good. Okay, without Christ, apart from Christ, everybody is what, bad or good? Tell me. Bad, right, because of our sin. So, so bad and good here is more in, from the perspective of the parable in the sense that the gospel call is for the nations. So what I mean is this. So there could be a very faithful father of five, a very faithful father of five who's a great dad, who's a great husband, who works really hard, okay, and, and occasionally goes to church, and who was just like me before I was saved and said he believed the gospel, and yet he's never repented of his sins. Jesus isn't the Lord of his life. He's the Lord of his own life. His affections are for himself and doing what he wants to do. Does he need the gospel? He does. On the outside, he might look squeaky clean, but he needs the gospel. He needs to be born again. He needs Jesus to be the Lord of his life. And on the other hand, you might have a criminal who is on death row for murder. He's paying his punishment for what he's done, and he's he's going to, to, to die as a result of it. And we look at that type of person, and we say, that guy's rough. That guy's a bad dude, isn't he? Does he need the gospel? Yes, they both need the gospel. So the point here in the parable is that you go and you take the message to both bad and good, without distinction. This message is for everybody. What theologians have called this is the general calling. The general calling. The fact that the the gospel call, you could call it. The gospel is to just go out, is to be offered to everybody, and those who repent and believe will be saved. That's what this text is talking about here in verse 10. The call is for everybody. So practically for us, what this means is as you go to share your faith, there's nobody out there who is too bad for the gospel. There's nobody out there who has done so much in their life that is so evil and so heinous that they're, that they're, that they're so far from the grace of God that they can't experience it. That person doesn't exist, does it? Because the grace of God overcomes sin. And it overcomes all types of sin. Because it's the grace of God. Because salvation isn't based on what that man has done or that woman has done, but it's based upon the merits and the righteousness of Jesus. So for us, don't look at people and say they're too far gone. They're an atheist. They hate God. It's on paper. I know they don't like God. Don't say that. Don't give up on them. The gospel call is for them too. But it also, on the other hand, practically means for us that there's nobody out there who's good enough for the gospel, right? The man I just, just uh, gave an example of, fictional man, with, with the family and, the, and, the, and the, the wife and the kids and the faithfulness, right? He's not good enough to be reconciled to a holy God. He needs Jesus. He needs the gospel. So, so practically, that's what we think of as we look at the parable. The gospel is for all types of people. Go invite bad and good people to believe in Jesus. So, like his servants, we're charged. Like the servants of the king, we're charged with sharing the gospel with all types of people. Yet God, God is the one, isn't he, who will sort out in the end who is truly his. That's not up to us. Do, do we, we think through this idea that God is sovereign. God chooses people um, to be saved. And we think through that idea, we think that that doesn't have implications for evangelism. Actually, it's got great implications for evangelism. The fact that God chooses people to be saved and, and they're going to be saved because he's chosen them, um, we can't sit back and say, that doesn't mean I, I share the gospel. That actually should give us fervency to share the gospel. Because we know there are people out there who will be saved after they hear it. We know there are people out there that God has chosen who will respond to the message of the gospel. So the fact that God chooses and God, the fact that God will sort out those who are his shouldn't dissuade us from sharing our faith, but should provoke us to share our faith. Because the fact is, there's someone in your family. There's someone where you work. There's someone you grew up with in your neighborhood who might be saved when you share the gospel with them because God has chosen them. And so that should provoke us to share that gospel message. But we see this in our final point here, the fact that God sorts out those who are His and the fact 
And my third point is this, is that the king will not tolerate unprepared guests at his feast. The king will not tolerate unprepared guests at his feast. And this is in verses 11 through 14. Let me just read that again. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Verse 14 sums up our parable, and we'll get there in a moment. But the king will not tolerate unprepared guests at his feast. So what we see in this text is Jesus as Messiah is offered to Israel. They've rejected him. They, they ultimately, in Matthew's gospel, will hand him over um, to be crucified. As a response, the king, God the Father, extends his invitation the gospel to the nations. His servants go out and they invite all that they see, both bad and good, in the wedding reception hall is filled with people, yet there's still an issue. There's still a problem. Remember, this invitation, I said, was the general gospel call. Okay, It was just the call that says, here's the gospel, I'm sharing the gospel, repent and believe in Jesus. The general call that goes to everybody. This wasn't the effectual call. The effectual call is when, when the gospel is shared with somebody and the Holy Spirit causes them to be born again. So the general call is what we see in the parable because we see and we know that's what's in the parable because the king enters in this, this full banquet hall and there's somebody who doesn't belong. So you would think, right, at the wedding feast of Jesus, everybody belongs. But again, the point is this, that, that all these people were invited to believe, but not all of them did. Okay? So the king enters into the banquet. He sees an individual who does not have the wedding garment. I mentioned before at the outset that we've gone to a few weddings this summer, my wife and I. And one of the weddings we went to um, was a couple from our church that we're friends with. And I remember sitting in the wedding service. Um, I was dressed like this, and I looked around, and a lot of the men had on, you know, full suits and, and jackets and things. And, and I wondered, I thought it was a little weird, because when I go to weddings in summertime, I usually dress like this because it's so hot, right? And I usually fit in just fine with the other guys there. So I kind of noticed it and didn't think anything of it. Uh, so we go to the reception, and the reception is at the Detroit Yacht Club. Anybody been to the Detroit Yacht Club? Raise your hand. Oh, there you go, man. Okay, a couple. Or just you. Okay. All right, so Detroit Yacht Club. Yeah, I don't frequent the Yacht Club because I don't have a yacht, okay? But anyways, right when you walk in the Detroit Yacht Club, you see this sign. And the sign, I noticed it right when I walked in, I was like, I put two and two together. It said, um, you will not be admitted if you don't have a, a jacket on, okay? So I was like, oh, man, that's why everybody was wearing a jacket. I clearly had not paid attention to the wedding invitation, which said, wear your jacket, okay? So I walk in, and I think, you know, it's fine. This is a private wedding. They've rented the place out. I'll be good. So I went in, and I'm, I kind of look awkward, but I'm just talking to our friends. And our youth pastor, Johnny, walks in, and he comes up to me with the most serious face in history and goes like this. Didn't he kick you out? Didn't he kick you out? He was a serious as you can be. He thought I was actually going to get kicked out because I wasn't wearing a jacket. Uh, and I said, Johnny, Johnny, relax. I think it's fine. This is a, this is a wedding reception. But, but the point is this. Uh, actually, the point is, is this. They thought it was, I think it's funny because I think all the guys there were just jealous because they were hot and burning up and they had to wear their jacket. I didn't have to wear mine. That was what it came down to. But the point is this, right? Johnny thought I was going to get kicked out because I wasn't wearing the proper garment. That's what we see here in the parable. The king enters into the wedding reception, and there's an individual who he immediately notices is not wearing the proper garment. In other words, he doesn't belong. And as I study this, and as I think through what this garment represents, I don't think this is, can be taken as anything other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me look, work through this here for a second. Verses 11 and 12, we see self-righteousness won't gain you admittance into the kingdom. Self-righteousness will not gain you admittance into the kingdom. This is verses 11 and 12. The king comes in and he confronts this man. And what is this man's response? This man's response when asked, where is your wedding garment, is the fact that he was speechless. He was speechless. He had nothing to say. My wife and I, and if you have little kids or have had little kids before, you catch your kid in the act, right? Your kid's doing something they shouldn't be doing. They're disobeying. They're fighting with their brother and sister. 
Um, you catch them doing something out of the corner of your eye. We, we go up and approach them. Do they typically just tell us everything enough? No. They're usually speechless, right? So you, you say, Chris, how do you get the fact that this guy is self-righteous and trying to get in based on his own works? I think because he's speechless. The king, God the Father, confronts this man, and he has nothing to say because he knows he doesn't belong. He knows he is not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is trying to be reconciled to God based on his own merits. And so he is speechless, and he will not gain admittance to the kingdom. Verse 13, we see that self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that this man had, sends you to hell. It sent him to hell. The king, after seeing this man is not properly clothed, tells his attendants to bind him hand and foot and cast him in the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is language that Jesus has used elsewhere in the Gospels to describe the realities of hell. To describe the realities of conscience eternal punishment for those who reject Jesus. And so that's the conclusion of this, uh, from this parable, is that this person was called, they heard the gospel, but they never repented and they never believed in Christ. And therefore they didn't belong and they were cast into this place as weeping and gnashing of teeth. The text obviously communicating to us the realities of, of hell and the pain of hell. And again, which should provoke us to evangelism, shouldn't it? The fact that the gospel is for all people, and this is their destiny if they are not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That should provoke us to share the gospel more. That should want us to share our faith so that people don't have to experience that. And in verse 14, we see that it is not enough to be called, you must believe. So, it is not enough to be called, you must believe. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. That verse, I think, really serves as a summary for the whole parable, doesn't it? This invitation is extended to everyone. Without reservation, we share the gospel with with all kinds of people, with everyone we meet, regardless of who they are, how they look, or their background. And we call them to believe, don't we? We call them to believe in Christ, to repent of their sins, to be saved for all eternity. We call them to believe, but, but few are chosen. We read chosen here, again, we're reminded of God's choosing of sinners before the foundation of the world to believe. But we also have to remember this reality, that the parable, how does this connect? How does the fact that the gospel from Israel to the nations and and, and people from every nation will be included in the people of God, everybody will be included at this great wedding feast, how do we we kind of reconcile that um, with this idea of, of the righteousness of Jesus, the fact that they need the proper garment? And I think this is how we do it. We know that they need Christ. We share the gospel with them. And the thrust of our message is Jesus, isn't it? The thrust of our message isn't your best life now. The thrust of our message isn't that you can do this. The thrust of our message is that you're a sinner in the hands of angry God. And that you need his grace and his mercy. And that you need a righteousness that is not yours. What does Isaiah say? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. We need the proper wedding garment. We need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that is the message that we take to people. It is, as they say, Christocentric, focused on Jesus, focused on people's need for Jesus as the Messiah, a need that unfortunately the Israelites in this, in this parable rejected. James Montgomery Boyce has a great quote on this verse, on, on, on the verse about the wedding garment, and I like, I, I'm going to read that quote here. He says, if we are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we will be able to stand before God and rejoice in our salvation. But only if we are so clothed. If we are not clothed in Christ's righteousness, we will be speechless before God and will be cast out. So he uses the text there. So only people clothed in the righteousness of Jesus can stand before a holy God. Only people clothed in the righteousness of Jesus will inherit that eternal life with God. Finally, as we think through this, tying this all together, this fact that this gospel message goes to the nations and that we have a role in that, we think of this wedding feast, don't we? We think of this wedding feast, and when you think about communion, when we take communion, we observe the Lord's Supper, all right? We do this as a memorial. We're not doing it today, sorry. But we do it as a memorial, right? We remember Jesus' blood spilt on our behalf. Remember his broken body 
And then Paul tells us, as often as you do it, you know, uh, until the Lord comes. And so there's this, there's this expectation of his coming. So, it's, 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 so it's, a, it's a memorial, but it also looks forward. It looks forward to the wedding feast in heaven with Jesus. It looks forward to the day when the church, the bride of Christ, is with her bridegroom. It looks forward to a day where we can rejoice for eternity in a gospel that sees this, this, this banquet hall filled and this huge table. And the reality that you and I this morning, if we're believers here today, will be sitting at that table together. We'll be sitting at that table with people from Africa, people from Asia, rich people, poor people, all types of people. And we will not be there. We will not be there that day because of our background, because of our works, because of our strength. We will be there that day because of the blood of Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to sinners. Now, isn't that a glorious thought? And that's the reality of this text this morning. So I pray that as we go from here today, as we go into our work weeks, as we interact with our family members, our friends, our co-workers, we will remember that one day, that person who is hard to get along with, one day, that person we might think we are, are better than them, one day, those people might be sitting with us at a table where the reservation can't be made by us. It can only be made by God. So I pray that this parable will provoke us to share a gospel and to call as many as we see to accept Jesus and be clothed in his garment. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. It's a sobering word. It's a sobering parable. It's a sobering reality often for us to be reminded of our own insufficiency. But God, we need to be reminded of our own insufficiency. We need to be reminded that we did not work our way to you. We need to be reminded that we do not deserve you. We didn't deserve you the day that we were saved, and we don't deserve you today. But you are ours because of the garment that we wear, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are, we are yours because when you look at us, you see his righteousness. You see the perfect obedience of your son. You see the one who is our substitute on the cross. And you don't see us. You don't see our sin. You don't see our rebellion. But you see Jesus. We thank you for that this morning. I pray that we would take the gospel the nations, that we would call as many as we see to this wedding banquet, and that when we call them, God, you would help us to show them their need of scripture, the forgiveness of sins, and their need for a righteousness that is not their own. I pray that you would use each person in this room, even this week, to share the gospel boldly, and that you would bring sinners to yourself. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.